Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The city of Tulsa took an unparalleled step on Monday when a forensic team broke ground in an unmarked section of a cemetery. The dig may uncover the remains of hundreds of people rounded up by the government and killed in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. That tragedy was omitted from history books, though oral histories came from local black and white people. The renowned choreographer Donald Byrd created a dance piece based on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. The work is called Greenwood, and it was performed here in Atlanta this past winter by the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Later in the hour, we'll listen back to my conversation with the choreographer and Ailey Artistic Director Robert Battle. First, a historic art museum brings us music. The Hammonds House Museum in Atlanta's West End continues to offer rich content through its virtual programming. The latest addition to the museum's arts and cultural programming is a series being offered bi-weekly through December, conversations about jazz and other distractions with Carl Anthony. He joins us now, along with Leatrice Elsie, the executive director of Hammond's House, Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Thank you, Lois. How did this series originate? Well, you know, as we've been thinking about our digital programming, um, you know, we already had a visual arts component. And just like the, the museum's regular um, programming, we have just this array of programs that we um, kind of focus on. And music, um, specifically jazz music, has always been a thing for us. So we decided that we wanted to translate that online and what does that look like? Um, and so Carl and I had been talking about just kind of a jazz conversation in general, not necessarily for the museum. We were really thinking about it in terms of Carl's own portfolio. Um, and we've probably been talking about that for probably about a year or so um, as he's been, cause you know, he's moved from Atlanta and he's in Miami now. And so it's like, okay, so, you know, as he's been thinking about, you know, some things that he wanted to do, and then when we started thinking about this, I was like, you know what, Carl, why don't we join forces and create this property for the museum with you as the host? And that's kind of how it came around. And we really wanted to you know, present something that did a deeper dive into jazz music. So probably a little bit more than he was able to do when he was a radio host where, you know, on radio, you're really able to talk to an artist, talk about their latest project, do some background, but not what we're doing in this hour, where we're really kind of making it subject matter, you know, driven 
um, like this, Carl can talk about this a little bit when you speak with him, but like this last show was around Max Roach's We Insist album, because, you know, we are looking at what's going on in the streets right now, what's going on in the nation, and really wanted to be responsive to that through this programming. So um, the programming for this month really focuses in on the music of protest and how jazz music has always been in a position to express protest and express how they feel about a particular subject matter through the music. And so that's how it came along. And we just really want this program to be a deeper dive and to have, um, you know, give the background, what are the stories, um, bring some scholars to the table and um, hopefully make people appreciate this music a little bit more. Carl, have you decided on all of the topics for this series? It runs through December. We haven't gotten a full schedule yet, but we're looking at programs like uh, revisiting the Young Lions, talking about some of the composers, both old and current, looking at different vocalists who have uh, changed the landscape of jazz singing. Those are just some of the topics that we're planning on dealing with, because jazz is just a integral part of all of the music that is coming out of America now. Uh, and it has been for decades. I mean, it's often referred to as America's classical music. It was born and raised and continues to grow here in the United States. I was hoping you could talk about your role as nighttime jazz host of Serenade to the City. Thousands of Atlantans know you from your years at WCLK. That was a very special time for me uh, in the music industry. Uh, Atlanta was booming with jazz uh, during those uh, years that I was at uh, WCLK. And it was always important to me to offer our listeners not only new jazz from international and national artists, but also to present the local artists that uh, were doing such great things in sustaining the music in Atlanta. You know, the visiting musicians, you know, they come and they go, you know, they're in and out. They help create the wealth of sound that Atlanta offers, but it's the local musicians that I always wanted to favor because they kept the music going in the city. You know, so I was always out in the clubs seeking to find out who was doing what and, you know, put together a jazz calendar that allowed people to know where to go and what kind of music to listen to, you know, so they didn't have to travel needlessly to find the wrong kinds of music. Serenade to the City was a milestone for me and the ability to host shows and meet musicians from all walks of life was just a pleasure. Mm. Then in 2011, you founded the website Notorious Jazz. Why was that important to you, to have that platform? I wanted to create a platform that encompassed an educational component where people could go out and look at my blog and find out who was important in making this music happen. I called it Notorious Jazz because the jazz age was a notorious age in American music. You know, it birthed a whole lot of innovators. And, you know, you had people like Duke Ellington, Jimmy Lunsford, and, you know, the Dorseys. And they just created a time when the music was alive and they danced to it. And everybody was just feeling their oats, for lack of a better term. But I wanted people to know who was responsible for this music. And they can come to Notorious Jazz and put in a name and find an artist and also find out who they were related to in terms of making music and who they inspired and who inspired them. And that's why I created Notorious Jazz. 
I remember several years ago attending the public radio program directors meeting, annual industry gathering. You may have attended some. And there was this debate among some of the program directors that jazz had become so abstract and intellectual that it wasn't really serving the largest audience possible. And I thought that was incorrect and also outrageous. What are your thoughts about um, jazz being esoteric or having become that way? I think that was more of a media thing. They create different avenues of thought. You know, you have free jazz, you have avant-garde jazz, which is very esoteric. And only a handful of people understand the conversation between those musicians. Music to me is, for the most part, if it's got a good beat and you can snap your fingers, tap your toes, nod your head to it, it's good music. Yeah. There is nothing, you know, they want to make jazz intellectual. And I take nothing away from the composers. They write difficult music and you have to study it. You have to play it. You have to practice it in order to get it right. You know, a lot of jazz is improvisational. These musicians don't even know what they're going to play, you know, but it's in their heart and it's in their soul and it comes out in a way that sparks all kinds of emotions out of the listeners. We don't know what we're going to hear sometimes, when we're going to hear it, but we always walk away with some kind of feeling. So getting back to the series, will the series offer some sort of primer? Are some of the topics you will discuss in these digital sessions a beginning for some listeners? Or, Beatrice, you mentioned a deeper dive. I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of really who your audience is, whom you target here. Well, our audience so far in the first two episodes, it looks like a lot of people who are, we have a, a large percentage of the audience are people who are jazz heads, who I would consider jazz heads, people who love jazz music and um, are really appreciative of taking that next step, you know, and to be able to have a conversation about jazz from a different angle. Um, and we have had a few people on that are new to jazz because, you know, part of this is really introducing the form to people as well. So one of the um, shows that we want to do really is a primer. Um, and actually it will, I mean, it'll be a number of shows that are a primer where it's Jazz 101. So Carl has put together a Jazz 101 type of project. And so that is something that we will use too. Actually, he used to, back in the days when I worked at National Black Arts Festival, he used to do that for us at the festival. And so we've kind of, you know, pulled that out and he's refreshed it in order for us to do that here too. Because, and he also has jazz for children. So, you know, we have all of these, you know, different ways to introduce people into the conversation. So yes, it will be for, um, you know, people who are, who are jazz heads as well as people who are just being introduced to the art form. So Carl, someone lands from another planet. <laughs> Where would you begin? Where would you suggest that visitor from another planet begin? What would be the first piece of jazz you'd recommend listening to? Everybody's classic. Miles Davis is kind of blue. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's something I think that everybody can get into and understand. For me, it's just a great place to start.
actually started with uh, Sonny Rollins' The Bridge was the first quote-unquote real jazz album I ever heard. You know, I grew up on Billie Holiday and Broadway. Father loved Billie Holiday, so he had everything she had ever recorded on 78. And my mom liked Broadway. And I found out that, you know, a lot of the Broadway tunes ended up being jazz classics. But definitely Miles Davis's Kind of Blue would be a great beginner album for any visitor from anywhere. Well, you're going to offer some jazz workshops and listening sessions as part of this series. What will you be teaching in those workshops and what listening do you recommend for those sessions? We'll start with, you know, the basics like Jazz 101, where the music came from, you know, starting all the way back to the drum in Africa and bringing it forward to America, the Caribbean, South America, um, the different kinds of influences. You know, I'm going to look to deal with periods of music because every decade had its own sound and its own group of players that moved the music forward and gave younger musicians something to shoot for in terms of creating their own sound. So, you know, it's there's people who like stride piano. There's people who like bebop, straight ahead, the modal period. And it's important to cover all of those one at a time so that people understand what they're listening to and why they're listening to it. I was intrigued with the jazz for children. Carl, where do you begin discussing jazz for kids? Years ago, I met a, I was at one of the uh, conferences, I can't remember which one, and I met a musician who had taken nursery rhymes and put a jazz twist to him. And his name was Josh Greenberg. And it always intrigued me as to how to introduce jazz to children. I found out over the years on the radio that most people that wanted to be introduced to music, especially jazz, love vocals and love ballads. People love words and they love songs that they can relate to. So my thoughts have always been to introduce children, one, to the lyrics of songs, because most songs, especially those coming off of Broadway, were not difficult songs. They're easy to understand. And the lyrics are basically poetry, and kids are into poetry via rap. between nursery rhymes for the youngest of children and vocals for those that are of a much older age, it's easier to get them to understand jazz and then take them from there and move them into music without words. I'm wondering about your thoughts on the future of jazz and new upcoming young artists. The future is actually now. The streets have always been important to the sound of jazz. And I think what is going on right now is going to be a platform for what's to come. There's a social conscious right now that a lot of the musicians are taking into account as they compose and perform because of what's going on in terms of you know, police violence and Black Lives Matter and we are the protester movements and things like that. So I think for the immediate future, a lot of the music that's going to be created is going to have some element of social consciousness to it. Where we go from there, I'm not so sure. Hmm. Well, jazz has symbolically been unifying 
when the U.S. State Department wanted to help fall relations with the Soviet Union, mid-20th century, even a little earlier than mid-20th century, they sent some of America's greatest musicians as jazz ambassadors. In what ways can this series help unify us during a period that feels so very torn apart? Like Carl was saying, jazz has always been a unifier. The music has always been a unifier. And really, in a broader, from a broader perspective, art has always been a unifier. And it provides us with a space that we can all come in and speak a common language. And then from that, you know, kind of space of commonality, we're able to branch off into our issues and talk about our issues and deal with our issues in a different kind of way. And so I believe that this program, you know, when I look at who is on the line when we have these shows, I see, a, I mean, a number of the people I already know. And so I see a lot of different people from different backgrounds. Um, you know, the other beautiful thing is that we've been having people join us from different parts of the country, which has been really great as well. And so um, I think that as we build this community out, that we will have that opportunity to have these conversations that are, because we've already, even out of the two conversations that we've had, both of them have been about the music, but also about life, also about life in America. Also, you know, the first one where we talked to musicians who were talking about how, is, how COVID is impacting them. Um, and, you know, we had some very real conversations about how they felt about this moment. And the questions from the audience, you know, and the comments from the audience were part of the conversation as well. So we'll just continue doing that. And so jazz music has always been a unifier. And I don't see that changing. And I also want to say that even though we only really have it scheduled for people to register through December, the plan is that this is going to be an ongoing series for the Hammonds House and for, um, and for Carl to participate in. So um, we just, you know, only put it up through December uh, on the site. But starting in the new year, you know, it will just kind of continue on until, until it is no longer a necessary series, you know, <laughs> until we have jazz scholars all over the place. Music knows no boundaries, and it has no color, it has no race, it has no culture. It defines itself, and the listener decides what resonates within their soul. So it's easy for all the politics, all the religion, all the conversations that are negative to humanity to disappear when people from different nations and different cultures are listening to music because that's all it's about. It's about the sound. It's about the feeling. It's about the emotion. And I think empathy comes out when we listen to jazz because it's an emotional music that we hear. Carl Anthony is the host of Virtual conversations about jazz and other distractions with the Hammonds House Museum. He was joined by museum director Leatrice Elsie. There will be more information about the bi-monthly series on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? WABE.org slash City Lights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at WABE.org slash City Lights. And thanks for listening. Almost a century after a massacre which left over 300 black people dead, the city of Tulsa has broken ground to dig for what's suspected to be a mass unmarked grave for those rounded up by the government and murdered during the Tulsa race massacre in 1921. In January, I spoke with Robert Battle, the artistic director for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, and choreographer Donald Byrd about a piece Byrd created for the Ailey dancers 
inspired by the Tulsa Race Massacre. The work is titled Greenwood, named for the neighborhood where the violence broke out. Donald Byrd began with some background to the tragic event. Well, it was a a period right after the end of the First World War, and it was the first time that uh, American black soldiers had, uh, had were in combat in the war and were actually uh, uh, fighting there, and they returned to America, and there was a little bit of disappointment around their return because they, while there fighting in Europe, they were uh, they were kind of, sort of, uh, uh, treated as equals, but they returned back to Jim Crow America. And so the, the, the Jim Crow era, especially at the beginning of it, which was this was uh, maybe um, 50 years after the end of Reconstruction. And uh, so it a lot of the what we think of as Jim Crow was starting to emerge at this point. So that was the you know the behavior of Jim Crow the uh, uh, was starting to emerge and to kind of evolve and turn into what we it we know it for. And so this was the the environment that the Tulsa race massacre occurred in. While I was reading about this, I was shocked that it's not in American history books. Mm -hmm. Why don't we know more about this? Why was this pogrom, which Mm -hmm. equals any pogrom in Europe, this was our government rounding people up, burning their neighborhood, and brutally attacking, murdering? Why is yeah. this not in American history books? Well, and, and also the, the one thing to remember is that this was not an isolated incident. It was happening around the country. There's another famous one that happened two years later in Florida, as a matter of fact, where Robert and I are both from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and so it was kind of shocking to me as well when I started to discover these things. And I think the reason that it's not in history books is because it was deliberately omitted and erased from the public consciousness by governments, by the, the news media, uh, and so that it would people would not know about it. That was the intention. That was what was wanted, and that is exactly what happened. So all the more important that now you are providing this important lesson in American history yes. as well yes. as an art form. The the dance unfolds in three acts, is it? Can you tell us something about the piece as we experience it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, I, I think one of the things to understand or to realize about the piece is that it's not uh, presented in a kind of linear narrative; that it's fragmented. And that we get things in pieces. The three parts that you're talking about are the uh, three ways that the the facts, quote unquote, of what happened or what instigated the massacre. Uh, uh, are presented so it's presented in three iterations. The first one is a kind of, is you could say a kind of literal representation of what happened. So the story is what we know uh, what happened with some certainty is that a young man, Dick Rowland, stepped into an elevator. A young black man stepped into an elevator with the white elevator operator Sarah Page. Uh, he stepped in the elevator and he also stepped on her toe and she screamed. He ran away. That's what we know that happened. So I present a, that version of, of, of what happened. And then there were other interpretations that was he stepped into the elevator and he attacked her. So we get a, that version of the narrative. And then there was a version that said that they were involved in a romantic relationship. They knew each other before. And in the process of being in the elevator with her in their uh, uh, 
kind of encounter there, uh, he stepped on her toe and she screamed. So the piece presents those three possible uh, alternatives or three versions of what happened in the in the elevator. Robert, you commissioned the piece. You invited Donald yes. to create this piece. Yes. Was it that you were specifically looking for a work based on Greenwood? No, it wasn't. And I have to admit my ignorance. Uh, I didn't know about Greenwood. And so... I mean, I, I knew always since I started um, as artistic director that, I mean, Donald Byrd is a part of the fabric of this company um, because of Alvin Ailey, who saw his work and who loved what he was doing, and Judith Jamison continued. So that, I knew, was going to happen. And I also know him to be a griot, you know, in in. in the ways that he tells stories that need to be told in a blunt way. Hmm. And I think people... (laughs) (laughs) You like blunt. Well, I guess I have to accept that as that's probably who I am. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I felt like, you know, I, I, I hate to keep saying that, that word, but in times like these, I think the truth Hmm. is threatened daily. Right. I mean, it always has been, but now we sort of don't know which side is up. And so you can either sort of walk into it, right, this this sense of horror that we're dealing with, um, or you can run away from it. And I know Donald Byrd to be a person that goes directly to it. And so I felt that that was important. That was important for Alvin Ailey's legacy, the legacy of this company, and the need of people to come in and see a truth that they may not know. And in some ways, by doing so, it's it's disturbing and comforting at the same time, right? It, it's that, it, I think it's where dance, in, maze, in some ways maybe uh, different than the other disciplines that uses language so that it becomes a little more polarizing. But dance has an ephemeral way of sort of being able to give you a hard truth, but have you interpret it the way that, that you want to. Mm-hmm. So, so you have that sort of uh, luxury of ambiguity that is sometimes important to get the story told. So anyway, for all those reasons, and then of course what he did and the subject matter, I mean, was just, I think, perfect for this time. Would you talk about the music? The music? Yes. Well, I, I think the, the the there's the music and then there's the quote unquote sound design, and I think they are are, uh, are they are interwoven, and so in some ways it's difficult to distinguish what one from the other. So the the music was written by Emmanuel Wittstrom, who is uh, an Israeli composer that I met when I was doing a residency at the American Academy in Jerusalem, like in 2000, and, oh, I don't remember, nine or 11, one of those. And, uh, and, and so uh, I like his music. I think it's, it's real, it can be challenging in terms of that it does not always conform to what you think uh, music should sound like often and and when i say that i don't mean that it doesn't sound like music but it there's some trends or some uh, styles or some fashions in music that he does not conform to mm-hmm. and so uh so he the music can be very challenging and then interwoven with are- sound by rob whitmer whom i've worked with for years as well and uh and that uh sound it was um, what I wanted from him was to create something that was like a uh, a soundtrack to a movie so it provided uh, along with the the music that Emmanuel provided is that it prov- that the the atmosphere the place uh, the the kind of emotional state was represented in the music and so I was res- and sound so that's what I was responding to and in fact there 
are spirituals interwoven. Yes. My my soul is my a witness. My soul is a witness, yes. And those were field recordings, uh, uh, excerpts from field recordings used by uh, that Alan Lomax uh, did. And, uh, and so I have found over the last several years that I've really been drawn to those uh, to those field recordings because it, they represent, and, and I think this is what Lomax knew, uh, and that people now know is that it's important to capture that that that, that sound, that music, those songs uh, were captured before the people that did them and did them a certain way before they had passed on. And so it it and, and I think it also firmly, in some ways, the spirituals these uh, from that period uh, places it in a specific time. Yes. Yeah. Alvin Ailey Artistic Director Robert Battle and choreographer Donald Berg talking about Greenwood, Berg's piece based on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. We'll hear more of this conversation after a quick break. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my January conversation with Alvin Ailey Artistic Director Robert Battle and choreographer Donald Bird. Greenwood is a work created for the company by Donald Bird that was inspired by a horrific event in our history, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Robert, would you tell us about the cast? About the cast? Yes. Oh, well, gosh. I mean, again, he could tell you better about the cast. Um, But the cast is Danica Paulus, who plays Sarah Page, and who plays Dick Rowland is uh, Bernard Gilmore. And I think what is important about that is that that was a very important aspect of the work, of what uh, Donald saw in the dancers, because there's a bit of acting that has to happen. So there has to be a sort of truth uh, to what you're seeing. So it's not always transferable because you're really looking at that person and seeing some vulnerability or some some strength or something that kind of drives the creativity. Uh, Jacqueline Green, who is fantastic. She, she's a yeah. joy, and we've had her yeah. on as well. Yeah, she's wonderful. And you would say she's like the witness, right? She's the witness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's a witness. She's also a, a, a character that has, I would say a character, uh, that has appeared in a, another work of mine and I and will appear in one that's coming up in the, in the spring That uh, that's in some ways inspired by uh, uh, Aunt Esther in the August Wilson plays. Oh, wonderful. And so it's that sense of someone who's lived for a long time that they transcend time and but they witness all of these events and they are there and a little bit inspired by uh, the work of Octavia Butler and um, and so uh, so this character that that you know is is an important part of it is that there are, it's important to have witnesses and also that she is also a surrogate for the audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a little bit of that recording 
by Austin Coleman and Joe Washington Brown from the Negro Religious Field Recordings, My Soul is a Witness. Robert, you mentioned drama and, and being an actor as well as a dancer. In fact, Donald Byrd studied drama yes. and, and um, invoking August Wilson and Aunt Esther yeah. seems as natural to you as speaking about choreography and movement. Mm. I've long thought that what distinguishes Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, aside from the magnificence of its dance, is this ability to convey a story so exquisitely. And is, is that something conscious for you when you are directing? It is, but I also think it's it's kind of the bloodline of, of the company. I mean, Alvin Ailey uh, was an actor. Uh, he actually performed on Broadway. Yeah, a couple of times. A couple of times. Yeah. Um, so I think that was sort of uh, instinctual in his choreography, that he looked at characters that reminded him of his you know, his upbringing or, or something, as he calls it, uh, blood memory. So I think that that is in the work, in what we do, and the notion that we're dancing about something, you know, not just for people, but about something that kind of gives you that sense that you are uh, trying to transmit through movement something about the human experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's very much, and in the audition, I try to look for people. I always say that I'm looking for somebody who doesn't just want to dance, but they need to, that that's the only way that they can tell their personal story. So that I know then that when they dance about something, that that personal story, no matter what the dance they're doing, whether it's something classical or whether it's something you know, sort of serious or whatever, their personal story shines through because they can't help it. So I think that's really a part of 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 um, what I look for in dancers, but what is kind of innate in uh, the richness of the history of this company that was founded on the brink of the civil rights movement. So it came out of a movement, and I think dancers, whether they are conscious about it or not, are aware of the fact that they have something to say. And I even think that about Greenwood. You know, sometimes the dancers, especially in times where things are sort of really um, intense, that's the best word I can say. <laughs> you are a diplomat. You know, yes, I'm being, I'm being diplomatic. Uh, but the dancers are people, you know, and sometimes they say, well, we're not doing enough. You know, what, what can we do? And so to be able to dance a work like Greenwood it is an education for the dancers, but it is also their way of speaking out. And, speaking and it's out an education for, for the, the audience. audience. Right. Yeah. And so that gives you a sense of purpose, uh, as Mr. Ailey said, not just to entertain, but to educate, uh, is very, very important. And we sort of lean on his words. You know, when Judith Jamison took over after he died, one of the things that she made sure of 21 years, and anybody who's interviewed her or talked to her, Anytime you try to talk to her about her own performing, she just turns it back to Alvin Ailey. And he said this, and he said that, and in, in the same way she was with the dancers, with the staff, with, the, you know, with everybody. So I think because of that uh, continuity that has happened, that people really sort of um, carry the weight of that beautifully and is seen through the performances. And you are only the third in that line. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Mr. Ailey, Donald Byrd, would you talk about the first time you saw Revelations? Okay, be happy to. 
So I, I, I saw Revolutions for the first time in 1970 in Boston. The Ailey Company was there. I had not heard of the Ailey Company before. Uh, my friend uh, that I was in acting class with, uh, William Hurt, uh, had seen the company in New York in December, and he said to me when he, we, he got back to school after winter break, you need to see this dance company. Uh, so I said, okay, you know. So I uh, went to the performance, and uh, it was uh, the, the, the whole experience was remarkable, like starting from the beginning. The first piece on the program was a piece of Lucas Hoving's called Icarus, and Judy danced in that. She was the son. Dudley Williams was in it. Um, and I think Calvin Retardier was also in it. And it I was just, I'd never seen anything like this in my life. It was remarkable, these amazing black bodies on the stage dancing. And uh, at the end of the evening, it, the program closed with Re Revelation. And uh, I will only say that at the end of the performance, like everybody else in the audience, I was standing and cheering but I was also crying. I, I, I was absolutely in tears and, and devastated in the most positive way possible. And I remember thinking at that time, uh, anything that can have this kind of effect on people, that's what I want to do. Mm. And I think that was the moment when I really committed myself to dancing. And perhaps I was committing myself to choreography. I just didn't know that that's what I was doing at that time. But that 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 kind of commitment, that statement, what that thinking kind of drove uh, all of my behavior in some ways over the next however many years later. Almost 50. Almost 50. And here we are, and Revelations brought you the revelation of becoming a choreographer yeah. and certainly a professional dancer yeah. before that. Yeah. So... We never get tired of seeing this. It continues to inspire. Mm -hmm. Robert Battle, have you ever heard anyone say, oh, not again? <laughs> have any of your dancers ever said, do we have to close <laughs> every performance with this? No. No, only, it's brilliant. Only one time did somebody who was interviewing me when I first started um, and it may have not been her opinion. It was just she was sort of, you know, I'm the new kid in town. Yeah, provoking. So she made the mistake. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> she said, um, and I love telling this story. She said, well, you know, you do revelations all the time. Don't you, don't you feel that, you know, you should kind of stop doing it? So many people have already seen it. Mm. And I said, well, when you get a stepladder and take down the Mona Lisa because, well, so many people have already seen it, then we'll stop doing oh, it. Oh, that's <laughs> fantastic. What a comeback. I, I, I must say that's, that's more eloquent than what I would have done. I would have responded. I mean, when I, I, when I think about revelation, I mean, I, I think in some ways like being a dance person, you can be, you can, you can be inclined towards being jaded a yes. little bit. And... However, uh, all you need to do is experience it again. Yes. And then all of that cynicism just disappears. It's just new things that you see that you experience mm -hmm. and you uh, kind of, it, it clarifies itself more and more, if more is revealed in it yes. uh, about how brilliant it is and how, uh, and how remarkable it is now one of the things that I I say about Revelation, and I think that and and I think that uh, uh, that it's a, a it's a wonderful example, more than a wonderful example example of this notion that what Black people in America have done is that they are they have be acted like alchemists. We turn hmm. the baseness of life of the history of slavery of being enslaved and the hardships and challenges into gold and revelation is turning that history into gold and something that is incredibly uplifting and life affirming and i have to say that when i was growing up the last thing that i wanted to hear at a certain point in my life i did not want to hear a negro spiritual 
because it reminded me of uh, slavery pain. and that somehow of pain and that somehow I felt responsible for that, mm. that it was my fault personally that that, you know, that that had happened. I know that's not rational, but that's kind of the feeling. And so when I saw Revelation, it was suddenly it was like the, the, the clouds parted and there was the sunshine about history. That's part of mm. what happened to my people. Robert Battle is the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. He joined me in studio with the choreographer Donald Byrd in January. At no charge, you can watch the Ailey Dancer's performance of Greenwood, based on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, on the company's YouTube channel, Ailey All Access. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with the Atlanta-based comedian and improv artist Mark Kendall. He has released some videos addressing racial injustice with comic satire. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can listen back to interviews and entire shows on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.